Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Idle Chatter. I'm your host, Ray Bohax, the hot rod farmer from Cat Swamp Road. And hopefully the sound of my voice has everything going well for you in your life, in every aspect of your life. That is my sincere wish for you. And I want to thank you so much for spending the next whatever with me. Because with Idle Chatter, we never know how long it is going to go. Last week, I said, I remember in the show that I wanted to, I was going to... Uh, make it a little bit shorter so I could get back out in the field and start to harvest some more corn, and it ended up being a longer than normal show. So with this guy here from Cat Swamp Road, you never know what you're going to get. And uh, so I apologize for that. And hopefully today I will not make the show too long, the normal time, about an hour, give or take a couple of minutes either way. So that is that. It's um, When I do the radio show, and I've told you this before, it's, I have my calculator out and I have everything because it has to be 1,440 seconds. And uh, it's a one-half-hour show, a 30-minute show, and then but there's six minutes of sponsor breaks, commercial breaks, whatever you want to call them. And, you know, thank God for that, right? Because uh, without that, you got nothing. And it's just a, uh, a hobby. So, and not even a good one at that. But so I always have to uh, keep converting because my soundboard doesn't reveal anything in seconds. So I have to convert the minutes to seconds and then I have to divide it out by 60 and then uh, go through that. So it's a little bit uh, more strenuous. And lots of times I have to end up actually redoing a segment because I went too long. And the, the, the 1440 seconds, the 24 minutes goes quite quickly. And with idle chatter, I don't have that, that uh, I'm not going to say stress, but that concern. So uh, it's close enough, right? If we're a couple of minutes one way or the other, it makes no difference. But on the radio, you cannot do that. It has to be dead nuts on. So it's like uh, running, like machining, right? Machining a part has to be right on the money. And uh, or running at the drag strip, right? Running on the index, so if you're a bracket racer running on the dial in so that's basically that and let me see what else thankfully i you know it's it's hard to believe that it's september already so uh but thankfully the cricket stopped cricketing or creaking or chirping is probably the proper word right i always around the end of august the beginning of september i don't know why but i get a cricket well usually multiple crickets in the basement where my office is, where I record, and there, and this guy this year is, he's like on turbo boost, this guy, he's so loud, and uh, right now he is quiet, but I don't know if that's going to change during the course of the show, so if you uh, start to hear a cricket, then I ask for you to forgive me, and I have to record my radio show tomorrow, so hopefully, God willing, he's not uh, chirping during the radio show, and if he is, he is, what can you do? That's what you get with the hot rod farmer, right? When you're in Catswamp Road, you can't expect too much. But, you know, interestingly enough, there's a, um, when I travel, I love to stay, or I, we stay in, I like to stay in Hampton Inns. <clears throat> they're, uh, I've always found them that they're, uh, that they're, they're a good value. And the rooms are, uh, for the most part, are usually very nice. If you're going to an area that you've never been to before, if there's a Hampton in there, especially a Hampton in Suites that you know it's a, it's a, I'm going to use the word safe area. It's not a questionable neighborhood. I mean, not usually the places I go are questionable anyway because they're all small little towns. But, but you know, it's, it's just a nice package altogether. And I remember back in 2008, I took a wonderful trip. It was by myself. Not It wasn't wonderful because it was by myself. But I always wanted to go out west on secondary roads out through Nebraska, out into western Nebraska, and then stay in the Scotts Bluff area and jump off into Wyoming and and explore that part of Nebraska, the Panhandle. And I always wanted to do it in September, but as you know, my wife is a school teacher. Then she goes back to school in New Jersey. They go back to school in September. I know in lots of other areas of the country, they go back to school earlier than that. Sue Moore told me down in Georgia, they went back to school like the first week in August or second week of August. But that is what happens here. But then ultimately, Charlotte goes to school, right? You think that she's a student, goes to school till the end of June. So past the past June 21st, so officially into the summer. But whatever. 
So I always wanted to go like in the middle of September because the weather is so beautiful. The roads are emptier. Well, I think the cricket is coming back. The roads are emptier and just, it's just, I mean, you know, it's warm days, cool evenings. It's just a beautiful time of year. And then you could maybe some guys are harvesting. You could see the harvest and it just, just really, I always, it always tugged on my heartstrings that time of year to travel. I don't know why, I guess for the reasons I just told you. But anyway, so with her blessings, I went on a trip. I think it was like September 15th or 16th I left. And this was back in 2008. And that was a year that the gas prices spiked. So uh, gas was, I think, I never paid. It was like three ninety nine nine every place I went back then. And I think coming home, uh, I paid four fifty just outside of Chicago. But there was it was no whether you were in a, in a small town or out the middle of nowhere. It was three ninety nine nine, and they had, oh, there goes the cricket. Here he comes. I guess he wants to be on the podcast. I could hear him in the headset. Hopefully you can't hear him. But if you do, I ask you to please forgive me. But anyway, it was a wonderful, wonderful trip, and I planned out a route that I'd never taken before. And I took Route one thirty six across Illinois. I might took other roads up until that particular point. But I stayed in Keokuk, Iowa, and there was a Hampton in there, a little Hampton, and it was very, very nice. It was a very, I mean, the room was small, but it was very, very nice. But anyway, and I subsequently stayed in that Hampton in probably 10 more times since two, since September of 2008, or maybe even more than that. Of course, I used to go out west uh, to uh, to uh, South Dakota, or Charlotte and I went on vacation, I used to go to um, Successful Farming in Des Moines, I used to take the same route, and I used to stay there on on en route to my destination but it was a very very nice hampton and like i said the rooms were on the small side but that was fine i'm not looking to uh, i just want to sleep but every time i went there there was crickets in the room and, and they weren't loud like this guy as i got but there was crickets in the room and i loved it because it was you felt like you were sleeping out in the uh, there he goes, you hear him? I felt like you were sleeping out in the woods or out in, or back on the farm over here with all the crickets and the chirpers. And, uh, but I guess a lot of people complained about that and they had to bring an exterminator in. But even though no matter what they did, the next time I went, there was always a, a, always a cricket in my room. And I, there was a field, when I say a field, there was a grass field behind the hotel. I mean, so it wasn't like it was in the middle of a cornfield. It was right in downtown Keokuk, for whatever that's worth. I mean, that's not like downtown Los Angeles or Manhattan. But I uh, always loved that cricket, and uh, the cricket I have over here keeps me company. But I don't think it's too good to have him when I'm doing the radio show and the podcast. But, hey, I'm not in control. If he wants to chirp, let him chirp, right? That's what God made him to do. But uh, as an aside to that, that was such a spectacular trip I've had. I was blessed with many, many, many spectacular road trips in my life. Uh, back years ago, when I went with my buddy Glenn Cross Country, then I went with my, uh, my, my best buddy Gene Worst. We went out west, uh, out to California. My Skyhawk was brand new and uh, just wonderful trips in that. But that trip in 08 was wonderful because it was all back roads. I took 80 across Pennsylvania and then from from the Ohio border on, it was two-lane secondary roads. And then just east of Keokuk, Iowa, Keokuk's right on the, right basically on the banks of the Mississippi. So you go right across, it's a free bridge, you cross from Illinois into Iowa, and Keokuk is right there. And there's a, a, a lock, I think it's lock and dam number 19, and they have a beautiful observation tower, and there's a hydroelectric plant there. So it's really a neat place. And uh and there's a big corn oil processing plant there right along the river. So it's had all different things that I like or love is probably a, uh, probably more a proper descriptive term. But about 20, going west, about 20 miles east of Keokuk, if that makes sense, on uh, Route 136, for some reason, I don't know what they were thinking. And they, it's a two-lane two road uh, for, for hundreds of miles. And then you come around, the road curves around, and you come around the bend, and it opens up to this huge four-lane highway. Two lanes eastbound, two lanes westbound, and they're far apart, spread apart. And that area there is, uh, I remember the first time I saw it, the sun, it was the sun wasn't going down, it was getting to be late afternoon. And it was a beautiful, beautiful day, and there's just, the, the you wouldn't think that you were in Illinois. I mean, Illinois is a beautiful state, but if you were to say something, it's, ah, you're in western Iowa or maybe Nebraska, uh, because it was the fields were so big, and, and there was this road, there was literally no one on it. 
So you saw this four-lane road. I don't know what they were thinking. They built this four-lane road for about 10 or 15 miles and then went back down to two lanes. But I just remember, that's funny how little things in life will stick in your mind. And often I think about what a blessing that that trip was and what a wonderful thing to have eyesight to be able to see that and to be blessed to be able to have the resources to go on that trip and but i'll never forget that there was just a one i remember coming around the bend and the road opened up and i said what's going on here because i was never there before and you know coming from new jersey being a new jersey farm boy the vastness of the midwest and then the west and the great plains and uh nebraska wyoming montana you know saskatchewan manitoba i mean i just um i'm just in awe of it the vastness and coming from new jersey which is the most densely populated state even though we have a farm but you don't see that vastness and i just love love that vastness and i uh, often think about that view the first time i saw it it was uh, spectacular and then i got into the hotel with the crickets so hopefully we don't have the crickets here today but maybe we will so this guy he's uh i think he's got a um he's running nitromethane or something because this guy chirps baby he chirps he's chirping a little bit now i hear him with the headset set on but thank you for letting me take a trip down memory lane and uh and that's really what life's about right under quebec license plates they have a saying je me souviens i remember and they still have it to the best of my knowledge. I think it came out in 1978 or 79 that they started to put that in French, Je me souviens, I remember. And I think it's so important to remember things in life. And those memories are, are, are worth more than all the money in the bank, right? And all different types of memories. Memories of friendships, memory of family, of animals, of wonderful times. And, uh, and it's just, uh, they're, they're blessings. And, that, and when, they're, when they're occurring, we never know what a, what a treasure they will become in our mind. So uh, that is that. Well, enough of, enough of uh, philosophy from the hot rod farmer, right? The Cat's Farm Road philosophy. Well, what we're going to do today is once again, I'm going to do something a little bit different. And I may have done this before. I don't think I did. But uh, we have over 300 episodes of Idle Chatter. And I think I have 86 episodes of the uh, radio show already, or 87, which is frightening. And then I have... uh, I guess altogether there's about 600 or 600 something shows I did if you put them all together with the short shows which is the uh, Hot Rod Farmer Minute and the Bushels and Cents and then I do the Christmas show that's only once a year but then doing the On the Road series so it's probably over 600 episodes of uh, of this guy over the airwaves or internet of the different shows uh, different subjects but I may have done this before but what I'm going to do today is I'm going to give you guys a test. All right, I know, oh, you're getting nervous, right? Remember the teacher used to tell you, okay, pop quiz. Well, you're getting a pop quiz, buddy, today, so you better pay attention. But, you know, I think that there needs to be a segue into that. And, you know, we're we're all a product of our environment. And as you grow up, you go into school, elementary school, and what we call a junior high in New Jersey. Some people call it middle school and then high school, and then some higher education could be college or a trade school or what have you. And you go, and, and, and life is full of tests, but our first exposure to tests are in school. And I think that really sets the stage for a bad understanding of, the, of, of what a test is. Now, obviously, in school, a test is, is, serves two purposes. The first purpose is for you to graduate and move on to either the grade or the, or or what have you. But in life, we take a driving test, right? If you want to get your if you want to get your license, you have to take a driving test. If you want to uh, become a, a doctor, you have to take a, whatever boards or whatever they call. It. If you want to become a lawyer, so there's many many different tests. And then within the trades, there's tests. So you have to take tests, and and so it, so one aspect of a test is for you to prove to someone what you know, all right? And say, okay, yes, you know this, you now become a certified welder. So you have to have a certain score. But that, like I said, that was established and many times when you're a young person and you're going to school, you're taking, you're studying to take, the, to pass the test. And that's 100% wrong, even though we've all done it, I've done it, because you want to pass the test and you want to move on. 
So the thing is that, but in life, there are other tests. And there's the test of time, there's the test of friendship, there's the, 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 the test of your character. And you can't study to, take the, to, to pass those tests. You have to look at the test in a different, through a different uh, set of eyes. Now, though a test is meant to show someone what you know, all right, for to accomplish a certain thing, to accomplish a certain, uh, to get a certain uh, qualification or what have you. But more importantly, the te- a test is for you, for you to to understand what you know and for you to 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 find out what you don't know. Now, most people, when they take a test. And we're going back to our school days, and I don't care whether it's higher education, whether it's college, or whether it's kindergarten, it makes no difference. When they take a test, they're just happy that the test is over, and for the most part, most people, I'm not painting everybody with the same brush, but yet I am, for the most part, oh, whatever, passing was 65, passing was 70, I got 80, forget about it, I'm on, I'm out of here, right? So the thing is that, and they're really not concerned with what they did not get correct, and they're also truly not concerned with whether they got the the ones that they got correct. That the ones that they got right was that by guessing if it was multiple choice, or were they really, really intimate with the subject matter, and that rolled off the tip of their tongue. I mean, whatever, however you take in test, whether it's a, on a computer or whether it's a. a uh, uh, a punch card, whatever they used to fill in the little dots uh, with the pe- with the pencils, it's irrelevant. So when you looked at that question, did you really know the answer, or did you have to did you have to look, contemplate it and think about it? But also, lots of times when you're taking, and this is the precursor into this, so I'm getting you prepared. All right, so that's what this is about. So please just stick with me. Don't click off. All right, and so, but the most important thing is for you to be honest with yourself and to be introspective. I think in every aspect of life, you need to be introspective. And in, 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 in this show, obviously, we're talking about machinery. But you have to say to yourself, you know, did I really guess at that, or did I take a lucky guess, or, you know, I said, okay, you know, the answer is this. E, um, EGR stands for exhaust gas recirculation, using it as, a, as a ridiculous example. And, uh, and I really don't know what that means, but I know what the letters mean. And, you know, sadly, as you, go in, as you go through life, you will see many professionals. And the professionals could be somebody that is uh, a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer or, or a judge, right? And you say to yourself, my God, it's frightening because they pass the test to get to where they are, but they really don't know what the heck they're doing. All right, and the reason why they don't know what they're doing is because they never bothered to understand what they what they got right, why they got it right, and what they got wrong, and learn from what you got wrong. Now, you, my audience knows that I am a Christian. I'm a devout follower, follower of Christ, and in life, God gives us tests. But so one of the the greatest tests was was uh, with Abraham when God asked told him, instructed him to sacrifice Isaac, which obviously, if you know the story, at the last at the last second, God told him not to do that, and he supplied a ram for the sacrifice. But but God, but excuse me, Isaac, not Isaac, Jacob, Abraham, excuse me, I'm getting my Bible stories messed up. Abraham trusted in God and knew that even if he executed that, he was going to be obedient, and God would be able to be able to uh, resurrect his son because when he had the servant come with him, he said, "We're going to go up to the mountain, and you wait here, and the lad and I are going to come down." And he knew he was supposed to sacrifice his son Isaac, and Isaac means laughter. In I guess that was Aramaic, um, and because both Abraham and his wife Sarah had him at the well, Abraham was a hundred years old, and Sarah was ninety years old, so way past past the age of giving birth. So the thing is that why I'm telling you this is that God did not test. He didn't say to himself, he wasn't sitting on his throne going, mm, I don't know, is Abraham going to listen to me? Is Abraham going to do this or what? So that test was for Abraham to, to for him to solidify his obedience to the Lord. So when we take a test, it's more for us, but we think that the teacher or the instructor or the association or the motor vehicle bureau or whatever the the governing body is, is the bad guy, 
all right? They're not the bad guy, it's more for us. And then one of the things when I was in college that really irked me is that you'd have a lecture hall and you'd take a test, and then the test, you'd say, okay, fine, you get the results, and whatever you passed, you failed, whatever, um, whatever it was, and you got 80, or whatever it was, and you never knew what you got wrong, and if you didn't get it wrong, you never knew why you got it wrong. And, I, and that's not that's not education. That's not learning. So when I used to teach the class and classes for Mr. Gasket for 13 years, I taught their EMIC program, the programmable fuel injection, which was engine ma- engine management installation center. So these were people who were going to shops that were going to become dealers for Axel digital fuel injection programmable ECUs and write calibrations. Is that I used to give everybody a 10 question test in the beginning because I needed to know what they knew and they needed to know what they knew and we and I believe it or not I've had had many people get zero on that test and the person would talk ah, I built this and I'm going over 850s in the Mustang and blah, blah, blah. and the guy got and it was it wasn't the test on Axel digital fuel injection because that not would have not have been fair to them because they didn't come to the school yet so it was tests on on engine theory on engine management on fuel systems there was stuff they should have known to have been there or, or, or and and I am not a person who gives you who gave gotcha tests like trying to figure out because lots of times in life they give you you know some especially in school they give you a test and it's more of a test on how to take a test than what the subject matter is in the early it used to be NIASI, the mechanic certification test instead of ASC and there was more test on how to take a test than it was to actually what you knew about about engines and cars or transmissions or what have you and probably the best school i ever went to barring none was back in many years ago when i worked for allen test products i applied to go to the ford motor company eek 3 eek 4 certification class and it was in the the local one was in teterboro new jersey and because of my association with allen test products and we were sole supplier to ford for test equipment that i was accepted into it but that was no mickey mouse class because you had to go into that class and the first within the first hour they gave you a test and the test was both was a, was a written test and it was a practical test you had to wire up three circuits on a on a board and you couldn't and the way they did it is you couldn't so it was petitioned so you couldn't so the the other person taking a test couldn't see how you wired up your circuit and i forgot what the circuits oh, and if you did not get a certain grade on that test you were out of there within the first hour and a half so they said you are not ready to take this class and then to get your certification eek 3 eek 4 certification you had to take a hundred question test you had to wire up five circuits and then you had to go into the shop and with an inch and they had two booby trapped cars obviously it was engine management it wasn't the air conditioner or a braking system they had an eek 3 lincoln and they had an eek 4 crown victoria and they were booby trapped and the and the the instructor sat on a stool right next to you and he says to you okay this is what it is and what they wanted you to do was to diagnose the car and follow the protocols that ford had with their diagnostic routines so you had to get out the proper shop manual had to follow the procedures and this was quite lengthy and then if you did not pass that even though you were there for five days that was the last afternoon if you didn't pass it you got no sort of eq4 certification so um this is gonna sound so thank god i did pass it all right and i you know passed all of the tests but and i guess i'm saying this humbly please know that but uh you know they just give me for certification then, like 10 years later maybe it was eight years later i found out that i was in the history of that school i was one of the few people that got a hundred on everything so i uh, and so i already had my engine shop i was at allen test products and uh and uh i met i met the head of the, the head of the the uh the facility there and uh, his name was dieter lang really nice older gentleman and he says oh he said you're ray bohax he says you're you're one of the few people that got a hundred in, in ford motor company's history on everything and you didn't even work for ford so I, I didn't find that maybe I shouldn't have found that because maybe my head would have gotten swollen right so anyway so what we're going to do today is I'm going to give you some tests 
Well, that's some tests. I'm going to give you, I think, five test questions that I have here. Now, granted, I understand that it's going to be a little bit hard because you're not going to see the test in front of you where you could read it. And listening to someone, specifically a podcast, you may be driving the tractor, you may be doing something else, you may be in a shop working, who knows, right, what you're doing. You may be cutting the grass, you may be harvesting harvesting a, a crop or what have you. So I understand that. So don't be hard on you don't be hard on yourself but what i am going to do is that i have written these test questions and they're from my website and these also uh i supply content for progressive publishing out out of idaho and they have progressive dairy i think they have progressive forage and they have something else they have three or four different publications so i supply these test questions and they run these test questions i think uh, maybe progressive hey i don't i don't remember but uh they they run them in their their magazines and it's more like a large uh large format newspaper i mean it's nice printed stock i mean it's not it's not like newsprint but it's not glossy paper the cover is but anyway so these are from the latest issue of progressive dairy and but what i did with these is that i i patterned them off of of years ago when i was a young man i used i think it was in popular mechanics they had Gus's model garage, which I thought was fantastic. And they told a story. So there was a story with it. And then in another magazine, uh, Popular Science, they had tests. And they took these as a kid, right? Look, young kid. And, uh, and obviously, I didn't know that much at that particular point, seven or eight years old, but I learned a lot. And the thing is that, and they took it and they wrote the questions as a story. So that's basically, in essence, what I did with these. They're written as a story. And if you like these, you could go to my website, farmmachinerydigest.com, and there's 22 or 23 tests. They're all multiple choice. And that you could just, you just read them, choose your answers, submit them. I don't know who you are. All right. And you get the proper answers back. So what we're going to do is we're going to start with that. So you're ready? No, the pop quiz. When you clicked in today, you didn't think it was a pop quiz. So I'm going to tell a little bit of a story with each question, and I'm going to read them so that I am not going to uh, wander off into uh, a tangent like I do if you listen to my show. Okay, so we have question number one, and the, the cricket is taking the test. It has been a rough winter, and the gravel road from your place out to the paved two-lane is more washboard than ever. Your wife tells you her car has a terrible rattle coming from the front end. It sounds metallic, as if the bumper is coming off. Concerned for her safety, you take it for a ride. And she is correct. It makes some racket like a barrel of bolts. You decide to turn around to head back to the farm to check it out. And you notice that when you gently apply the brakes, the noise stops. Baffled, you ask some of your friends if they have any ideas. This is what they say. So it's going to be the same farmer, farmer A, farmer B, farmer C, farmer D. So the thing is that, again, it's not important for you to remember whether it's farmer A, B, C, and D. The important thing here is for you to learn is what the proper diagnostic protocol was and what the most likely cause is out of the four farmer response I, I give you. Okay. Farmer A thinks the front wheel bearings are loose, and when you step on the brake, the caliper holds the rotor from moving in and out. Farmer B says that the shock is loose, and when the brake and the brake is and with the brake applied, it limits the wheel travel. And Farmer C says that the anti-rattle clip on the pads are either worn or missing. And Farmer D told you that once a car gets a rattle, you can never get it out. All right, there's always a Farmer D floating around. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through all the questions quickly. And then what we'll do is we'll come back and then we will, I won't read the whole thing. I'll just review the topic and then I'll give you the answer and we'll discuss that. Okay, number two. You are having breakfast with some buddies at the cafe in town. And this question comes up. Why does an older diesel engine run poorly for a minute or so in the cold weather, even though the fuel is not gelled? The guys at the table offer these explanations. This one should be good, right? Farmer A states that the reaction zone has not yet been established in the cylinder. Farmer B says Farmer A is making things up. There's always a Farmer B, right? 
He has been farming for 40 years and never heard of that. He says the fuel is not gelled, but the cold makes it too dense and the engine cannot burn it. Farmer C believes the glow plugs are not working, and Farmer D blames the ultra-low sulfur diesel fuel today and calls it junk, right? There's always one of those guys floating around. Everything is junk. The world stopped in the, whatever, 1972, 70, whatever, whatever year you want to choose. All righty. So now we have question number three. You caught the rally in beans, that's soybeans for those who aren't farmers, with some talk of China coming back into the market. While running a few loads to the elevator before the market pulls back, you notice that the engine in the semi is running more boost than usual. You also see when this happens. You also see when this happens, the EGT exhaust gas temperature goes higher. Not wanting to stop hauling, you just modulate the turbo boost by easing out of the throttle. That works and you sell all your old crop at a good price. However, you are now worried that the truck may have a problem with the turbo that will eat up some of your profits. When you get home, you pop the hood and find a small rubber line hanging by the turbo. You connect it and everything is now back to normal. At lunch the next day, you ask four of your friends if they know what happened and what the hose is for. They are anxious to tell you. Farmer A says that he thinks the hose puts boost pressure to the injection pump. Farmer B is stern in stating that it is a boost-sensing hose to the wastegate actuator. Farmer C is confused since the turbocharger is controlled by the throttle pedal. Farmer D believes that the hose somehow tells the turbocharger to shut down if you use the Jake brake. Alrighty, so we're over to question number four now. You are reminiscing about the early cars and pickup trucks with a catalytic converter and how if you were behind one on the road when the driver floored it, you would be the recipient of a rotten egg smell as they sped away. Everyone chuckles, but then the question arises as to why that odor occurred and why it is much less prevalent today, even though vehicles still have catalytic converters. These are the reasons the others gave for the odor. Farmer A says that the gas was different back then, which is why the exhaust would smell. Farmer B believes the carburetor was designed to provide a rich mixture under full load and EFI runs leaner. I have to flip the page here. Farmer C agrees with Farmer B, <coughs> but says, excuse me, <coughs> that, I'm banging at everything, says that, not only was the mixture inherently richer, but the fuel was also used to shut off the catalytic converter. Farmer D says his cars never did that back then because he would cut off the catalytic converter and junk it. Alrighty, so we have one more question here, one more quiz question, and the uh, I guess you could count the chirps on the cricket and see which is the proper answer. Living so far out of town, living so far out of town is terrific. Still, it is a hazard to the windshield in all your vehicles. Flying gravel from a passing car or truck means that broken glass is typical. Your old pickup finally succumbed to the road and needs a new windshield. You shop around for the lowest price and you find one. It is a replacement from China and is one-third cheaper than an American brand. The glass guy tells you he sells many of them. You decide to go with it. And then a week or so later, you discover two things. The installer had to put a large amount of silicone seal around the edges to hold the glass in. The first time you drove at night with oncoming headlights, you swore you saw double. You tell your buddies this as they offer the following advice. All right, so two things. There's a lot of silicone sealant around the windshield. And when you drove for the first time at night with your new Chinese windshield, it looked like you were seeing double. So Farmer A says that you must be getting cataracts on your eyes since the windshield cannot do that. Regarding the silicone, the installer was sloppy. Farmer B says that the windshield has a different arc to it, and that is why there is more silicone and that it is also optically distorted. Farmer C insists that you need new glasses, and you probably never noticed the amount of silicone before. And Farmer D thinks the glass has too dark a tint, but agrees with Farmer A, the installer was sloppy. 
So we have those five questions. Alrighty. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read my answers so I could be tight with them and then we could we could uh go a little bit uh okay here's I'm, I'm i'm messing up my papers here all right and then we can go into a little bit more detail okay so far so question a was about your wife's car that when you're going down the washboard road washboard road it's rattling metal to metal rattling and then when you step on the brake slightly that you are or that the noise goes away so our choices let me go back to this i don't want to labor you with this but okay farmer a thought it was the front wheel bearings farmer b says that the shock is loose farmer c that says that the anti-rattle clips and the pads are worn or missing and farmer d told you that once you get a rattle in the car buddy forget about it you can't do anything about it all right so the proper answer for that is farmer c is correct the anti-rattle clips are either missing or have lost their tension the clips are used to keep the brake pad tight against the caliper and not allow them to rattle when the piston is retracted. On some vehicles, ineffective anti-rattle clips will make you think that the bumper is falling off. To test the noise, <clears throat> to test if the noise is the brake pads, drive over some bumps and then do it again with the brake pedal slightly depressed so that the pads hug the rotor. If the rattle goes away or is greatly diminished, the pads are the culprit. So that is very, very, very common in all different brands of vehicles. Is that, and it's also common. This is my my embellishing on this, uh, or expanding on it, is that lots of times when you buy aftermarket pads, the backing material is not as thick or is made slightly differently because they say well if i move this or if i cut this notch a little bit deeper that i could fit four or five different applications or three applications just trying to amortize the cost so the thing basically is is that if you have a rattle like that and believe it or not i mean i learned this from general motors school up in you know mr dick hip i always i always uh, talk about him in tarrytown new york is that you would honestly think that the bumper is falling off because you would never think that that pad the metal backing of the pad hitting the caliper and hitting the bracket could make such a racket in the vehicle but you would i mean i've had people who swore that the bumper was falling off but back then they had metal bumpers right was falling off the car something horrific the wheel was falling off and all it was was the brake pad rattling and lots of times what will happen is that their anti-rattle clip, somebody does a brake job and they don't put new anti-rattle clips. Well, some of these anti-rattle clips, so you need to have a, an engineering and physics to figure out how they go in there. It's crazy. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> it's crazy. But the telltale is you just want to ride over the same bumps. You want to qualify, find the bump or a rough road that will make it bang and then very lightly start to apply brake pedal pressure just so you could move that pad out against the rotor and if the noise goes away it is 99 chances out of 100 it's the pads either the pads the backing is made incorrectly or the anti-rattle clips are missing they're installed properly or they lost the attention now one farmer said it could be a wheel bearing right and i'm not going to say that could never be but i doubt very much if you were to have i uh, because the wheel bear i mean if you had if you had that no first of all a wheel bearing would make a groan or a moan and wouldn't make a rattling sound all right so so that is the anti-rattle clips okay so now we're going to be on to question number two how you doing so far all right so question number two is that you're asking your buddies why an older diesel engine when you first started for the first 30 seconds or minute even if it's not that cold out runs very poorly and then smooths out so one farmer says it's the reaction zone has not been established <clears throat> farmer b says that he never heard of that that the other guy's making stuff up that it's the density of fuel farmer c believes that the glow plugs are not working <clears throat> and farmer d says the new fuel is junk right so that's what we got there the new fuel is junk let me see where my papers are okay this goes gotta go over here so all righty farmer a knows his stuff 
both a gasoline and diesel engine in both a gasoline and diesel engine a reaction zone needs to be established that is where the heat from the flame travels to the not yet combusted region since an older diesel engine has no other heat source new diesel engines keep the glow plugs on after the engine starts the flame becomes partially quenched until the reaction zone is established on a gas engine this also occurs still only the flame speed across the bore is impacted the operator of the engine is unaware of the lack of a reaction zone because a because the flame in a spark ignition engine the gasoline engine is ignited by the arcing of the spark plug there still needs to be a reaction zone but it does not give you a telltale sign of the engine running poorly or uh, sounding differently what have you and it happens much quicker but when you start a diesel engine it has it's a com- it's compression ignition so you're compressing that air to a certain temperature to hopefully to get it to ignite and you have to realize that the glow plug is just a hot ember that's that's glowing there so the way it's designed in place is that the that the fuel and air mixture is pushed near the glow plug and it ignites so the heat of the glow plug which is around 1200 degrees ignites that fuel and air the diesel fuel and air mixture and now it starts to propagate away from that but now it's cold so it loses heat and then the flame starts to it starts to it starts to uh, extinguish it doesn't extinguish completely out but starts to extinguish and the further it gets away from the glow plug steve more i'm banging into my papers here uh, with this new microphone you probably hear all that uh <clears throat> it extinguishes more so what the reaction zone is is that where you're basically going to have you established the same amount of temperature almost the same amount of temperature across the whole bore so as the and then once the glow plug shuts off all right the thing is that you are going to have this uniform heat and the flame is going to now travel smoothly across the bore and keep in mind on older engines you only had the glow plugs on during crank once you release the key from from crank to run the glow plugs the glow plugs lots of them were off before that you had a glow plug heater all right so it was it was off during crank but you had the residual heat whereas a modern tier 4 engine usually keeps the based upon the ambient temperature and the liquid temperature the coolant temperature will keep the glow plug or the intake air heater a combination of them all right uh, evoked until the the engine reaches a certain temperature so if you have your new tier 4 diesel tractor or pickup truck or what have you all right the thing is that it's going to start cleaner and stay cleaner and run run nice or run as it should be when it's warmed up because the reaction zone is still needs to be established but it is being helped by the glow plug so that is what that is all about so it's very common i mean my i have a uh, pump line nozzle diesel my my new holland tractor and it's you know mechanical diesel it has you know glow plugs and then you know you'll start it even on a 75 degree morning y'all start it to go into the field and you know and it'll run it'll run i'll say raggy for 25 30 seconds and and that's the reaction and then they'll smoke also i mean that's the reaction zone being established so that and as i said that happens with a gasoline engine but it happens much quicker and also because it's the arcing of the spark plug it's not relying on just the heat in the combustion chamber in the bore to ignite the fuel so it the reaction zone is there but it is not as as uh obvious okay so now farmer then i have question three let me get to that okay where is that okay question three all right question three basically is the guy was delivering his soybeans to the elevator and all of a sudden the boost started to creep up on his semi all right and the egt's creeped up also and now farmer ray says that and when he got back to the farm he looked he saw a small rubber hose laying disconnected from something by the turbo farmer ray thinks that the hose puts boost pressure to the injection pump farmer b is thinks that it's a boost sensing hose to the wastegate actuator farmer c thinks that the turbocharger is controlled by the throttle pedal so he has no idea what's going on and farmer d believes that the hose has something to do about telling the turbocharger to shut off 
when you evoke the Jake break. All right. So you know, keep in mind, um, you know, a Jake break is an engine break, and that operated off of the valves in the engine. Whereas today they usually use exhaust brakes. So people call them a Jake break, but it's not. It's not a true Jake break. A Jake break was a slang for a Jacobs break, and what it would do is it would keep the valves closed on a, on certain cylinders, and it would so the engine would be pumping against the closed valves, and that would be used to help stop the vehicle and slow it down without the truck without evoking the brakes. Whereas today they used exhaust brakes where they block off the exhaust and close off the exhaust flow. So they're building the, the resistance that way. They're not building it in the cylinder. So that's the difference between a Jake. People call, I got a Jake brake on my pickup truck. You don't have a Jake brake. You have an exhaust brake. Okay. So the, the so the so what that little hose was that was laying by the turbocharger, that little rubber hose, and once the farmer put it back on, everything was okie-dokie, right? So farmer B understands the system. Most, but not all, turbochargers use an internal wastegate that is controlled by a wastegate actuator. <clears throat> the hose that fell off the subject engine supplies manifold boost pressure to a sensing spring at a specified setting, the manifold pressure overpowers the spring. As a result, the wastegate is open, bypassing exhaust flow to the turbine wheel. So the waste, now a lot of older diesel engines on trucks <clears throat> and on farm equipment did not even have a wastegate. The way the turbocharger was designed, it did not have the ability to build extra boost. And <clears throat> one of the reasons why they use a wastegate is to control the boost, but also to build boost quicker. So if you, and remember a wastegate bypasses, has the exhaust bypass the turbine wheel. So when it opens up an internal wastegate, it allows, so it's like a water wheel at a grist mill. So that's what the turbine wheel is. So you're bypassing some of the exhaust. So if you're bypassing some of the exhaust by through this passage, this bypass passage, then what will happen is that you will not spin the turbine wheel as fast and thus since the compressor wheel is attached to the turbine wheel that will not spin as fast and you will control the manifold boost pressure so now if it has a wastegate actuator that does that and the hose falls off then the, the wastegate actuator never sees boost pressure and it will not open up the 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 bypass circuit which is the wastegate itself and allow the exhaust to bypass that turbine wheel which some people call the hot side of the turbo and then it will start to build more and more boost all right based upon the load because you have to remember that boost is based upon the expansion the heat of the exhaust exiting the cylinder it has nothing to do like one farmer said it's hooked up to the throttle it's not hooked up to the throttle it boost is load sensitive so boost is created by the expansion of the exhaust gas which expands from the from the cylinder head from the exhaust port isentropically as some people call isentropically which means it expands without thermal change so this expansion of the exhaust gas is intrinsically linked to the temperature coming out of the cylinder which is intrinsically linked to the load so if the engine is loaded it has more heat it has more fuel and you're going to have more exhaust gas expanding trying to get out of that cylinder and working against that turbine and spinning it faster the turbine wheel all right in the turbocharger and that's why they call it a turbocharger so keep that <clears throat> keep that in mind is that if you have an overboost condition then that is usually what the problem is if you have a under boost condition the hose is not off but the the wastegate may be stuck open or partially open so if it's partially open because it's carboned up or it's rusted or a combination of both let's say now we're going into harvest you have a combine and it's sat for a year it has it so the wastegate arm may the wastegate may actually be frozen all right and it may be stuck from sitting from the moisture so you need to to recognize that so boost so you need to be aware of what the boost strategy is and how it's controlled on all of your turbocharged equipment okay so that is that so now we have to go to question four and we're almost done 
And this is talking about why the earlier gasoline, you know, cars and pickup trucks, if somebody was in, in front of you and you whacked it, they whacked it to the floor and you got this, this you got within a couple of seconds, you had this rotten egg sulfur type smell. So, uh, so Farmer A says that the, the gas was different back then, and that's why the exhaust would smell. Farmer B believes that the carburetor was designed to provide a rich mixture under full load, and EFI runs leaner. Uh, what did I do in my question here? Uh, okay, okay, Farmer C agrees with Farmer B, but says that not only was the mixture inherently richer, but the fuel was also used to shut off the catalytic converter. How do I shut off the converter, right? There's nothing moving in there. And then Farmer D says his cars never did that back then because he would cut off the catalytic converter and junk it, all right? So now let me see where my answers are. I messed up my papers here. Let me go to this here. Just bear with me. Bear with me. Okay. So we are on question number four. And Farmer C is correct. With EFI, fuel delivery is more extensively managed than with a carburetor, but the same dynamics occur. On a production engine, the full throttle air fuel ratio is overly rich and is used as a quench in the cylinder to cool the piston t- piston crown and displace all of all the oxygen storage capacity of the catalytic converter and shut it off or in engineering parlance have it extinguished this is done to prevent the catalytic converter from superheating and melting under full engine load for an extended time a modern efi engine will do the same but in contrast, the carburetor dumped much more of the secondary fuel at one time. The EFI system does it in a more linear fashion. So I was kind of baiting you when he said, oh, how do you shut off the catalytic converter? It doesn't move in there. Well, the catalytic converter, the word catalyst by definition, not just with exhaust systems, means something that speeds up a chemical reaction without itself becoming consumed. So a catalytic converter his job is to convert the exhaust emissions and we're not going to get too deep into that right to something that is more benign and it needs to see an air fuel ratio of about 14.7 to actually 14.67 to 1 to be the most efficient and that efficiency is called the conversion process and if you have an obd2 vehicle pickup truck car suv and it sets a catalytic converter efficiency code that is what it's looking at at the amount of conversion that the that the that that is being experienced all right a certain conversion rate now what will happen is that let's say okay you're going you're you're hauling a a gooseneck trailer with a load of cattle Uh, let's say kind of like cattle so let's say you're hauling a load of uh, fertilizer all right and you got this gooseneck trailer hooked up to your gasoline powered pickup truck and now you're gonna you're, you're going up a long hill and you and you mat this thing to the floor but what will basically happen is that the air fuel ratio is going to go richer on most engines the peak horsepower will be made with around a 12.9 to 13.0 let's say 12.7 to 13.0 air fuel ratio versus the 14.7 at cruise the whole problem is is that if you still if you kept that air fuel ratio at let's say 13.0 and you're pulling this long grade in this gasoline pickup truck with this heavy load on the back or you get this thing whacked to the floor matted all right the thing is that the converter even though it will still be functional and what we mean by functional is the conversion process will still be taking place albeit at a less efficient rate but the problem is is that when you overfuel the converter is that the temperature goes up so what was so before these so back in 1975 when these came out all right and then subsequently up until today the whole the the whole idea is that at wide open throttle to have a much richer mixture than you need to make peak power and you're actually sacrificing some some power all right and what you want to do is you want to dump a lot of fuel 
and you're going to dump a lot of fuel because you say, well, well hot rod, you just said it's going to overheat the converter. No, you want to give it a tsunami. You want to give it a tidal wave of fuel that you actually wash out the converter. And that's the term that's used. So you actually, the converter shuts off. So the conversion process is no longer happening. How does it do that? Because for the converter to generate heat and for all of this to function, it needs to have oxygen. And the converter is able to store, the catalytic converter is able to store oxygen. It's identified as its oxygen storage capacity, right? You're not going to see this, learn this anywhere. Uh, I'm, I'm not bragging. All right, so what happens is that because a basic tenant of physics is that you cannot have two things in the same place at the same time. If you dumped a lot of fuel in, then what will happen is that you will displace the oxygen storage capacity. And even though the fuel is very rich, the converter will shut off, it will extinguish like any, I'm not going to say flame because there's really not a flame in there, but you're going to extinguish it and then even though you're running a rich mixture and you're pulling this trailer up a long grade a 10 mile grade and you got this bad boy matted right and this thing is 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 singing like anything all right you will not hurt the catalytic converter now back to the original question is that why did the vehicle smell like that because as the converter was on the on route for lack of better terms to being extinguished it became superheated for a few seconds and then that was what would cause the sulfur smell once it became extinguished by by displacing all of the oxygen storage capacity is that the converter would no longer smell and its temperature would drop and then once you came to the top of the hill and you released the throttle and the air fuel ratio went back to 14.7 to 1 which is stoichiometric is the converter would relight again now it's it, the term is relight meaning the conversion process is taking place it's not like there's a fire in there like a barbecue grill or something all right so it'll relight so the thing is that when you smelled that years ago or if somebody had the carburetor adjusted wrong or even on a modern engine if you have it's running rich for some reason you will smell that sulfur smell but it will not be as intense as it was back in the old carburetor days because the carburetor when the person dumped it to the floor the carburetor was was basically very digital in the sense that once the secondaries or even if it was a two barrel didn't have the secondaries and it dumped fuel it was very digital whereas the fuel injection it has the ability to bring it on and extinguish the converter but if you have a 2022 pickup truck gasoline or you have a 1975 pickup truck gasoline and the converter is still on the dynamic of shutting off and extinguishing the catalytic converter under high load conditions is still the same all right there's not that has not changed whatsoever they're just able to control it better and control it more smoothly than being very digital with a carburetor and dumping a ton of fuel right so now we are on our last question okay and the last question is number five and it has to do with the broken windshield and you bought that china windshield right and then you bought that china windshield and then the guy had a lot of silicone on there and then also you thought that it was you thought that it was uh that you saw double at night when you drove for the first time right so farmer b is correct most inexpensive imported windshields have a generic arc to them to fit many different applications and thus amortize the cost over many uses that is why the installer needed to use an excessive amount of silicone also poor manufacturing quality can result in what is called an optical distorted wind optically distorted windshield often this appears at night or when looked through at a certain angle simply put you got what you paid for so keep in mind you know if you live you're going to buy a windshield for something is that you go with a lot of these aftermarket windshields that's why when i put a windshield in my cars all right i always demand an oe windshield my wife's old zx2 we had to put a new windshield in it there wasn't there was no longer an oe windshield available it's a 1999 escort all right same at windshield as my four-door escort and the thing is that uh prior to that she had a broken windshield and i got a ford windshield for it it was perfect so we got a chinese windshield not that i wanted to but it was the only thing that i could get for it and you could see uh 
that there's a lot more silicone when he put it on because they're going to amortize it. So if you have a newer vehicle, or if you have, even if it's not that new, if there's an OE windshield available, always get that. Even if you have to spend a couple of dollars for it, a couple of dollars extra, get that because the arc is going to be right. And what they basically do in the glass business is they take and they say, if we change this arc and we do this windshield for 20 different applications, 30 different applications, and then the installer just fills and goops it up. And sometimes the arc is too great and he can hardly put any any silicone in there and mount the windshield properly and it's up against the pillars and then it leaks all right and i've heard seen the windshields they actually creak going down the road all right and then they leak so it's very 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 important there's a reason why that there's a reason why that windshield is cheaper and then also as far as optically distorted that is not a function of the arc it's a function of the glass manufacturing process and it's very very common i'm not going to say you cannot get an oe windshield that is optically distorted but it's very rare. Keep in mind that for all intents and purposes, the OE stuff, and whether it's farm tractors, combines, cars, pickup trucks, is is much better quality than anything in the aftermarket. And if you are going to buy an aftermarket, and and specifically when it comes with a windshield, then you'll buy a PPG or some known company. All right, but you know, if you, like I said, it's like anything. I mean, if you like anything in life, if you're doing something and you're trying to bring it down to a price point and still be profitable, then you have to cut some corners somewhere. And you know, with something like a windshield or, or any types of part for your machinery, for your farm machinery, your road vehicles. It, I mean, if there's nothing else available, like I had to do with my wife's car, all right, then so be it. But another thing to keep in mind is that a lot of these windshields today, and even the OE stuff, the glass is not as strong as it used to be, and it's very, and they get pitted very easily from like if you live in an area uh, that gets a lot of dust storms or a lot of dust behind you on dirt roads, gravel roads, or even over here in the Northeast where they put a lot of salt on the roads and they put grits, which is salt, and little, little tiny, I don't want to say pebbles or whatever it is but little it's a it's a very fine fine ground up i don't know what some kind of stone and then you're riding down the road and you don't hear it hitting the windshield but it peppers the whole windshield and whereas years ago the glass would hardly be peppered my windshield on my fiesta is peppered the windshield on my wife's escape is peppered and you know it's not where it's optically distorted but it's not as clear i mean you wouldn't know the difference unless you put a new windshield it's not like i can't go down the road and see but the glasses i'm going to use the word softer now than it was years ago so hopefully you enjoyed taking the tests i invite you to go to my website farmmachinerydigest.com or to go to progressive dairy all right they only have uh, that today have the latest issue has this test that i just gave you but but go to and take those tests and really like i said remember it's not for for me to know what you got right or wrong it is for you to learn from it because it because the real test is in when it comes to machinery all right in, in agriculture or anything when you have a problem and you have to fix it so i mean just because you passed the test in school or got your certification or got what have you means absolutely nothing and the whole premise of my podcast my website my radio show is to teach you a diagnostic procedure a thought process and be able to educate you so if you because the 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 educated farmer is the most profitable and yes the educated farmer is the most profitable when it comes or it has the potential to be the most profitable when it comes to their agronomic or animal husbandry aspect but i as i always make no bones from the first time i did this show on the radio show what i am t- teaching you will never make you a nickel never make you a penny let alone a nickel it's going to save you thousands of dollars and it's not what you make but what you keep that counts so you could have the best crop prices you could have the best cattle prices you could have the best milk yield what have you and if you're all giving it up by improper decisions and i call it the farm shop we all make mistakes and we all make improper decisions but that is rooted upon it to make to to you're not you, you you're just 
you're just throwing darts at a board if you have no education about it. And I get upset with the community. I get upset with the industry because they talk about sustainability on the farm. And yes, sustainability on the farm obviously has to do with soil health and things of that nature. But you have the best soil health in the world. And if you blow up all your engines, you're out of business. All right, or if you or if you don't know what you're doing, and I'm saying that knowing how to drive or operate your equipment, but if you missed the optimum planting window, all these different things come into play. And for you to just and for a farmer or a rancher to think in one dimension, and you know, success on the farm or ranch is a three-legged stool. And I said this right from the beginning. If you remember early on the days of idle chatter, is that. It's, it's agronomy or animal husbandry, depending upon what you do. It's your marketing, right? And it's your machinery. You take, if you have a three-legged stool, like a three-point hitch, you remove any one of those legs, you're falling on the ground. The stool is not supporting it. And the same thing happens. And it, you know, and I have listeners that aren't farmers, all right? The majority of them are in agriculture, all right? But you're a trucking company. You got a, you're a printer. You got a printing press company. You got a, a, a you, you you got a machine shop, you you whatever whatever you're you're a roofer, you're a landscaper, you know your equipment can do you in. So you, let's say you have a print shop and you get this wonderful print order, but you never took care of your printing press and the thing blows up and it costs you it costs you so much to fix it. Now I'm not saying things can never break, but you have to make a this a, a concerned effort to think as machinery and that's going to happen with education so hopefully you enjoyed the test please go to my website take tests if you have any questions on them reach out to me at hot rod farmer at farmmachinerydigest.com and i just want you to know that i'm pulling for you the american farmer and rancher and my beloved beloved america and the cricket said he got a hundred percent take care have a blessed day bye-bye